I started out as a teenager reading serious books, Christianity infused the popular culture. And that's pretty much all gone. Well, I think Gilead is the greatest Christian novel of the 21st century. Christ ought to be at the heart of culture because God is at the heart of human beings, whether they know it or not. Well, welcome to the Ask Podcast, and we're back with Greg Sheridan, and I can confirm that Greg is real, that he's not just an emoji or something, because we met up in Sydney and we, we had a good time, although you did try to lead me into papist ways. You came along in a spirit of ecumenism. We had our podcast in front of St Andrew's Cathedral, and then we walked down the street and around the corner, and you um, went into Polding House, the Catholic Archdiocesan offices, uh, to a Catholic Weekly function and uh, mind you also yeah. attended by uh, other non-papists like Lyle Shelton formerly of the Australian Christian Lobby so it was a it was a strong it was a strong afternoon it was a strong afternoon and yeah we we really enjoyed it and very much enjoyed talking about it and we, we were in, in some sense beginning to talk about some of this in chapter seven where we're talking about smuggling Christ into popular culture now, why did you, this, is a, this was a fascinating one as well, and I'll ask you the same question as I've asked for all the others. Why did you write this chapter? Well, David, I'd have to say to you, this chapter was probably the most fun to write of all. Uh, it's not the most important chapter. It's not as important as the crucifixion or, you know, uh, Paul the Apostle or whatever. But um, I live and, and swim, if you like, in the ocean of popular culture. That's my whole, that's my whole mm -hmm. life. And uh, I spent a lifetime you know, reading novels and uh, writing books and uh, all the rest of it. And um, popular culture tells you a great deal about the the state of, um, of a culture's mind. And uh, I'm 65. When I started out as a teenager reading serious books, Christianity infused the popular culture. It, it was everywhere. It was the operating assumption of, um, of uh, movies and books. So the, the Academy Award-winning films were very often had Christian themes. The best-selling books very often had Christian themes. Every bookshop in the city that I ever went to in Sydney, where I grew up, had a big religion section, which included lots and lots of books by and about uh, Christianity. And that's pretty much all gone. And popular culture has become now hostile to Christianity in, in the course of my, popular, uh, my working life. And... Um, Christianity is either now derided or mocked or abused or it's just whited out altogether. Now, there mm -hmm. are exceptions. There are terrific. And I think the situation is a little bit better now than it was five or ten years ago. But um, and so I'm looking for those wonderful green shoots and Christians have become more clever now that they've worked out the ambient culture has lost all its sympathy for them. They're becoming more clever at creating their new culture. Part of the object of that chapter was to let people know about the fantastic new shoots of Christianity that are in contemporary culture and let them know what was there just one generation ago, which still speaks to our contemporary circumstances. Yeah, now, I, I want us to be very careful about this because people who are listening to this or watching this, um, I, I remember there was a writer called John Blanchard who once, he wrote a great line once when he said, is there such a thing as Christian music 
a Christian building or a Christian potato. And his argument was that music was music. You know, um, now, I think when people think of, of Christianity and culture or Christ in culture, they're thinking unless you're doing a painting of Jesus or singing a song with what are perceived to be religious lyrics, that it, it's not really very Christian. Whereas the reality is, I think it was, it's particularly C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, of course, who, who argued that all the great stories in, in history were ultimately stories that point to the greatest story, and that actually you cannot keep um, Christ out of human culture. And I think in your, in your chapter you reflect that in different ways, although there are, you know, there are varying degrees. So, for example, you mention the novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Now, when I, when I first read that, I was just stunned at how beautiful that was and how Christian and, to be honest, how Calvinist it was. I'd, I'd never come across yeah. a Calvinist novel writer before. No. <laughs> it, was, it, was, no. it was spectacular, wasn't it? Absolutely. Well, I think Gilead is the greatest Christian novel of the 21st century. Yeah. So I'm very devoted to a whole lot of Christian novelists from the 20th century. Willa mm -hmm. Cather, Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene um, and a whole lot of others. And their novels were very explicitly about Christian themes. Uh, how does, Evelyn Waugh wrote very often, how does a civilised Christian person survive in a culture of increasing barbarism? Willa Cather, in a completely different way, wrote a similar sort of theme. Graham Greene dealt with the miraculous in his wonderful novel, The End of the Affair. Mm -hmm. But Marilyn Robinson, uh, the, the novel Gilead, uh, is... Uh, certainly the best Christian novel of the 21st century that I've read. And I agree with you that all great artwork is in the end tending towards God. But, you know, people have, need their signposts and novelists who deal actually with Christian themes and with Christians are very helpful to people. Okay. So the plot of Gilead is an ageing Congregationalist minister. He's 77 years old. He's about to die of heart disease. He married when he was young. His wife died and his child died. And he didn't marry again for 50-odd years, and he married late in life, and he's 77, he's got a young wife and a seven-year-old son, and he writes this letter of reflection to his seven-year-old son for his future, and he deals, it's the recollections of his long life, he deals with his father and grandfather, who were also Congregationalist ministers on different sides of whether you should take up arms in the Civil War, and then he reflects on his own life, and this, it's, it's an exquisite novel, and um, mm -hmm. there is a plot in it, and there is dialogue, but it's more reflective, and normally I don't like that sort of novel. I like novels with lots of sharp, clever dialogue. I like Evelyn Waugh and Anthony Powell and humorous, witty dialogue, and uh, it's full of Christian reflection. So he's, he's going to die quite soon, and he contemplates heaven, and there are pages and pages and pages of meditations about what heaven will be like. And I haven't read anywhere else in mainstream literature. This prize won the this novel won the Pulitzer Prize, so it's a very widely accepted novel in mainstream literature. Reflections on what heaven will be like. How will our physical bodies exist in eternity? And how will we meet? He thinks, how will I meet my son, my seven-year-old son? It'd be grand to meet him as a as two fully fledged adults. On the other hand, it'd be grand to meet him again as a little child jumping into my arms. I know that heaven won't disappoint me, but I can't believe we lose the wonder at, at this world and so on. 
and uh, his reflections on the nature of life and his love of his wife and so on. It's a profoundly uh, Christian book. And I'll tell you this, David, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. I recommended this book to all kinds of people, Christian and mm-hmm. atheist alike, and not one person has been disappointed in reading mm-hmm. it. Now, I'm, I confess, I didn't know about the novel myself until a Christian friend of mine pointed me to it. And so that's partly what my chapter is trying to do to alert people to some of these wonderful things that are out there. Yeah, you're a wordsmith and I'm, I'm not flattering you, you know, but you're a very, very, very good writer. I mean, I enjoy reading your, your columns for the way, not just for the information they impart, but you use words in, you know, a, 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 a very good way. But I feel that Marilyn Robinson is in a different league oh, from almost anyone I've ever read. I've, I've ever read. I mean, just reading that, I just thought, "Oh my goodness, this is like an artist. She's painting with words." It was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? You know, I couldn't agree with you more. She's certainly, absolutely, in a different uh, league as a, as a writer to me. No doubt about that. But um, I wonder. I don't know, David, if you've read the novelist Willa Cather. If, um, if I was going to compare Marilyn Robinson to anyone, it would be Willa Cather. Willa mm-hmm. Cather uh, began life as a Baptist and became uh, a very faithful Episcopalian. And she was a very conscientious Christian. She wrote in about the 1920s. And two of her novels that I also mentioned in this chapter, My Antonia and um, Death Comes for the Archbishop, they're, they're they're remarkably similar to Marilyn Robinson. Like Marilyn Robinson, she's a voice from the Midwest. She's from Nebraska. I think Marilyn Robinson is writing about Iowa. Mm-hmm. And again, her novels don't, that they don't really have conventional plots and they're not full of dialogue. But my Antonia is just the celebration of a wholly good human being, a, a wonderful person who creates a circle of grace around her. And there's nothing mawkish or unrealistic about it. Death comes for the Archbishop. So Willa Cather is a very, you know, orthodox, faithful, good Protestant woman. But she writes about these two Catholic priests, these missionaries in New Mexico in the 1800s. And this is, without exception, the most piercingly brilliant depiction of the vocation of a good priest that I've ever read. In all of, you know, I've read many, many novels about priests. And uh, these two women emerging from the great American Midwest uh, I don't know that Willa Cather was a Calvinist exactly, and her theological concerns are a little different from, from Marilyn Robinson, but there's a great sympathy. And if anyone had described these novels to me in advance, I would have said, oh, well, I've, I've no interest in that. You know, uh, no real plot, very limited dialogue, uh, no, not even necessarily psychological development of character. And when mm-hmm. I first read Willa Cather, I read her because um, a critic I love, Joseph Epstein, said she was the best novelist of the 20th century. At first, first 10 pages, I thought, well, what's the fuss about? This is rubbish. And then when I'd read it all, I thought, I- I- I'm just in the presence of a divine genius here, which is the same feeling I have with Marilyn Robinson. And, you, you know, you use that phrase, divine genius, but I do think that the creativity of human beings does... Uh, point to the creativity of the creator and the good art and I'm, I'm uh, wordsmiths and painters and musicians I mean somebody once said to me that the best argument for Christianity was Bach you know because he couldn't listen to Bach without believing in God you know and uh, and 
It's interesting because you're talking about smuggling Christ in. I think it's where Christ belongs. And I, I mean, I'll give you another example of this. And then I've got another question. Uh, by the way, um, you've convinced me about Willow Cater. I'm going to go and read that. <laughs> I really am. I, I, I trust your recommendation. Um, I hope you won't be disappointed. I, I suspect I won't. Uh, I remember, the, I don't know if you know the films of Terence Malick, but I remember going to see uh, one of his films, A Tree of Life. Now, he has a unique style, a very particular style. He's a genius with cinematography and how he does things. And I remember this was a film that had Brad Pitt in it. So lots of people packed out the cinema expecting some kind of action movie. And I saw people getting up and walking out. It's, it's the first yeah. time I've seen that in a cinema. Because he's, I think it's 14 minutes at the beginning is a quote from the book of Job about the creation. And he, he portrays the creation through a form of theistic evolution. And that's all it does. And it was stunningly beautiful. But it, it, it begins with the words of Job, where were you when I created the earth? You know, and it was stunning. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. I, you know, this is a better sermon than I could. <laughs> and you see that happening with things. But I've got a thought for you here. Now, in the book, you mention Ross Du... Do that? Is that how you pronounce his name? Do that or do that? Either one, yeah. Right, do that. His decadent society. Now, I, I again, I have to say this that um, I'd heard of him and I'd thought, no, nah, I'm not going to be interested. But he's a brilliant analyst, as far as I'm concerned. He is, yeah. And I, I like the insight that you refer to there. He argues that much popular cultures become literally decadent. So I don't think. I think he's right. I don't think culture as culture is necessarily good. I think you can have good culture and decadent culture. Um, and it's very interesting, again, just what you're saying. You know, there's so many things going around in my head. Um, that the, the, the genius of Marilyn Robinson, for example, is it's very relatively easy to portray a bad person as interesting. That's why all the best roles in movies are for villains. Yes. You know, it's very hard to portray a good person as interesting, but that's what they did. And, and I think Duhat's commentary about a decadent society, I do feel that. I feel that the dumbing down of culture, I'm not being kind of snobbish here, but I think the dumbing down of, of all forms of culture is, is something that happens when we move away from God. And, and what I'm suggesting to you is that Christ is the ultimate source of all good culture. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with that absolutely, David. So I think Christ ought to be at the heart of culture because in the end, God is at the heart of human beings, whether they know it or not. And mm -hmm. the, the true subject of literature is the truths of the human heart. So literature and great film ought to be exploring the truths of the human heart and at the center of the human heart is God. Mm -hmm. But um, Reflecting a bit on Ross Duthat, wonderful columnist, brilliant, brilliant columnist, fabulous books, wrote a wonderful book called Bad Religion. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his, his critique of culture is decadent. He means literally and or technically decadent. That is, run out of energy, uh, enervated, um, entirely self-referential, looking in on itself all the time, unable to achieve the transcendent, lacking energy, uh, not, not going after... Uh, not going after, um, you know, big themes. And the great writers of the 20th century and the great films of the 20th century, I mean, How Green Was My Valley, um, mm -hmm. 
The Keys of the Kingdom, uh, lots and lots of others. Uh, films that I love, I'll show you how old I am, Boys Town, Men of Boys Town. And uh, these very often dealt very specifically with religious questions because mm. religion is the meaning of life. Christ is the meaning of life. And films weren't embarrassed to do so. The culture was not embarrassed about itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the books that I single out um, is Graham Greene's The End of the Affair. And The End of the Affair is a very normal Christian setup. Two people are having an adulterous affair, a married woman and a single bloke in, in wartime London. The building they're in is bombed. It seems the fellow is dead. And the woman says to God, please let him live and I'll, I'll bring this affair to an end and I'll order my life according to God's law. Uh-huh. Guy lives and that's what she does. And Graham Greene, with all the brilliance of a novelist, uh, charts then the bitterness of the fellow who, who finds the affair ended. But the woman, the woman discovers God. She goes on this journey then. Mm-hmm. And you, you discover it later by reading her diary. She gets into an, a, a passionate love affair with God. And, uh, and she pours out her heart in her diary. And she's grateful for God's presence in her life. And she says her only concern is the suffering of the people around her, her betrayed husband, her scorned lover, other people she meets. And then because Graham Greene is an uncompromising writer, so even a genius like Marilyn Robinson doesn't give you, say, a miracle in the book and force you to believe it or disbelieve the book. Mm-hmm. Graham Greene does just that. So mm-hmm. several miracles are affected. And um, this woman becomes friendly with, with a man who suffers from a disfiguring birthmark and he falls in love with her too, and she rejects him because she's going to be faithful to her husband. But she, to show him her acceptance, she kisses his disfigured birthmark. And then, over time, the birthmark disappears, and and he's restored uh, to to full health. And then, then she dies. Now, Graham Greene was one of the supreme novelists of the 20th century. This is achieved with magnificent novelistic artistry. But to accept the novel, you have to accept the possibility of the miraculous. Uh, now, I don't know anyone who really does that in contemporary literature. We have all kinds of other weird things, you know, magic realism. People turn into salamanders and all kinds of crazy stuff. Comes <laughs> and we accept novels about witchcraft in which witches can do terrible things and so on. But a miracle, a Christian miracle, uh, is very rare. And only a generation ago... It was, um, it was quite common. There were films, uh, Miracle in the Rain. There were all kinds of films which um, dealt with the miraculous, the bishop's wife about the intervention of an angel. This was a normal part of Western culture until a minute ago. And yeah. um, uh, it's, I think we lose something when we, when we cut off that possibility in life. I think we're poorer for it because, you know, I'm thinking about this and... I remember going to see a Leonard Cohen uh, concert at Edinburgh Castle with my sister. And I absolutely love Leonard Cohen. I think he's a fabulous poet and I love his music. But at one point I turned to my sister and said to her, there are 10,000 people here. And I think you and me and a handful of others will get what he's singing about. Because half his lyrics were about sex. I said, most people will get that. But the other half were about the Bible. Mm. And they just shot through every aspect of it. And... I don't think how you can get Shakespeare without knowing the Bible. I, I don't think many of the, the things that you mentioned. You know, I'm interested. There's another one. We're, we're recording this before Christmas, but this will go out after Christmas. So 
But um, it's worth thinking about this. I was intrigued by the sentence where you said, when you were a kid, you know, many decades ago, The Christmas movies we always watch where it's a wonderful like life and miracle in 34th Street. Now it's Home Alone, Love Actually, or Die Hard Actually as well. That's, you know, and I, I think there's something missing. I mean, I, I took my kids to go and see, I mean, I do, I do think seeing Lord of the Rings, that became a Chris, Christmas tradition for us. But I, I, I took them to see It's a Wonderful Life, uh, the art cinema in Dundee, and they were just blown away by it, you know, and it's made... You know, and I just wonder, you know, we are losing something when the Christian elements are being removed. Oh, absolutely, David. So there was this film starring Russell Crowe a few years ago about uh, Noah's Ark, and there was no God in it. I mean, how can you have Noah's Ark with, without God? And <laughs> um, uh, similarly, there was this unspeakable, terrible, shocking crime against humanity biopic about Tolkien, Mm-hmm. which didn't mention his Christian uh, mm-hmm. faith at all. And Tolkien pulsated his Christian faith. It was everything about his life. It was his artistic inspiration. It was the pattern of his life. It was everything about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I write in, in that, that chapter that the producers of this film treated Tolkien's Christianity the way Queen Victoria is alleged to respond to lesbianism. You know, she'd heard mm-hmm. of it, but she didn't believe it really existed. And, and I think we do lose an enormous amount when we take Christianity out of culture. But here's moving that on then, the next step is, how do you bring Christianity back into culture? So there are a few interesting commercial examples that I offer, the series Jane the Virgin, the series Blue Bloods and so on, which I think they're not exactly Christian uh, altogether, but they're, they're very favorable towards Christianity. And then Christians have to be clever enough to create their own culture. So I didn't write about this in the book, but I've been very impressed by the couple of episodes I've seen of this um, uh, television series, The Chosen, which Mm -hmm. is about Mm -hmm. the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And these folks, they just crowdsourced uh, enough money, $10 million, to make a high quality, a technically high quality um, series about the Gospel stories. Now, they do put in some stuff that's not in the Gospels, but it's all faithful to the spirit and the message of the Gospels. They give a bit of a backstory to some of the Apostles, which which is not there, but it's consistent with everything that's there. And then, um, uh, so there are examples of Christians who, who are uh, creating their own culture, and it's so good that it gets into the mainstream. And then there are some folks in the mainstream who've kind of got over the sort of super anti-Christian qualities of it 10 years ago and now make films like um, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood and Ride Like a Girl and so on. So, you know, there's a few TV series and a few movies and so on. There's a whisper of Christ uh, in, in these in these products, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because um, as the Bible stories become less known, there's a sense in which it's almost easier to to smuggle things in, if you like, because you know, in in when I grew up, which was which was probably a little after you, <laughs> and you know, soap operas and television, Christians were always portrayed as initially kind of fussy busybodies, you know, just the you know, basically elderly or middle-aged women who were gossips, always in the soap operas. That was it, or as young zealous hypocrites. You know, yes. who, they, you know, and and 
it was fascinating. I mean, I think you get biblical themes portrayed in other ways. So I, I want to ask you about, we, we've only, we, we, there's, we're going to continue this discussion next time because there's no way, we, we've got several pages, in fact, we, we're not even a third of the way through this chapter, and it, it's fascinating, and both you and I are really, really interested in it, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are as well, because I think it is important to see where this has gone and where it could go. Um, but I want to ask you about Jane the Virgin, which I have not seen, and you said you cannot say how much Jane the Virgin surprised me and how much I enjoyed it. So explain that, please. Well, Jane the Vir- I came upon Jane the Virgin very serendipitously. Uh, my wife and I were in London, we were staying in a hotel, and I had a lot of writing to do. So we were in quite a big hotel room, and she was down one end watching this TV series on her iPad, and I was at the other end writing about the Chinese Communist Party or Donald Trump or military matters or something. But I could hear this dialogue in the background. And in journalism, you get very accustomed to working while there's background noise and so on. Mm-hmm. But actually, even just there, I could, I could hear that it was kind of quite a bit clever and, and more interesting than usual and so on. And soon enough, I, I stopped writing about the Chinese Communist Party and started watching Jane the Virgin with my wife. And of course, I'd heard this title, Jane the Virgin, so I expected it to be ribald, uh, anti-Christian, um, a send-up of virginity, perhaps even um, blasphemous or something like this. You know, I, I just recoiled from it. I never would have watched it if if you'd offered me the choice. But it turns out, now it's it's not for everyone, and in its later series it goes a bit silly, and it gets some some sort of gender politics, which is silly. But mm-hmm. the central story is about a young uh, uh, Latin uh, Hispanic woman, Venezuelan extraction, living in Miami with her mother and grandmother, and she decides, under her grandmother's advice, they're they're good, church-going Christians. She's going to remain a virgin until she marries, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not mocked in the series. This is affirmed. Now, through a typical Hollywood cockamamie bit of nonsense, a crazy doctor artificially inseminates her when she's in for some other examination. So mm-hmm. she's pregnant, but mm-hmm. she is a virgin. But this is, not, uh, this is not used to mock Christianity in any way. Rather, the validity and the integrity and the attractiveness of Jane's decision is affirmed again and again and again. And it's not... The, the series is not pro-Christian in the sense that it says this is a commitment everybody should make. But it does say this is a commitment that is, it's good that Jane made it. And then many times through the series, Christianity is seen not just as a cultural artifact of Hispanics, but as a positive force for good. Jane's mm-hmm. mother gets cancer at one point, so the whole family automatically drops to their knees and begins reciting the Lord's Prayer in Spanish. At one point later in the show, uh, Jane's husband has died. She's remarried. She's so discouraged that she's thinking of taking her son out of the religious school that she has him in. And her second husband, who is an atheist, says to her, you must not do that. Your Christian faith is what has made you such a wonderful person. You must never be discouraged in your Christian... Now, honestly, David, I nearly fell off my chair. I just couldn't... (laughs) And this... Series was a runaway, wild success, yeah. and of course, to render Hispanics faithfully, you have to give some uh, account of their religious sensibilities. Now, as I say, in its very final series, it gets a bit silly about um, 
gender politics. It has to put in some of the zeitgeist stuff. <laughs> and, and Jane is not an absolutely model citizen. And it has all the cockamamie stuff of an American dramedy and sitcom. But overall, overall, it's a tremendously positive uh, uh, message. And there's scenes early on where the grandmother is interrogating Jane about her behaviour and there's a priest there and Jane says, well, look, I can't, I can't uh, tell a lie in the, in the uh, presence of the Padre, so I have to tell you the truth and so on. And uh, I, I just found it, uh, and of course it's brilliantly made, very, very clever, very funny. So I thought, wow, that's great. Maybe Hispanics can, can do for us a bit, you know, get a yeah. bit more of a hearing for Christianity than, than us Anglos. Yeah, and I think you'll find a lot more as well, because I think what, what you find is the religion of the progressives, and I do call it a religion, is what is shot through in every single soap opera and every single film. And to be honest, it becomes dull. It becomes boring. Yeah, it just, yeah. it, you know, it, it, I just, oh, here we go again, you know. And they're always going, this is really radical. And you're going, no, it's not really radical. I mean, I used to go to these degree shows at, the, um, at an art college, and always there'd be a journalist. They knew I was coming and they would come and say, well, what do you think about, you know, this? And they would want a short quote. And I would just simply say, look, someone who's dangling a, a penis on a cross or something, that's not radical. That's old hat. That's, you know, a dead carrot on a chain. I said, that's not radical. I said, what would be radical would be to do something good and true and beautiful. And maybe, maybe that's where we'll stop for to, today because... Okay. You say, um, you talk about why Christianity, why popular culture needs Christianity. I'm just going to list the reasons. You say Christianity is true and art should seek the truth. Christianity offers the deepest sense of hope in the human condition and art and culture should seek hope. Art which ignores the religious dimension of humanity cuts itself off from a vast amount of human experience. And fourth, and this was the one that really got me, the Christian perspective injects depth and meaning into normal, even quotidian human affairs. Hence, Gilead. Hence, you know, just, just you don't need a painting to be of someone slaughtering someone or a film to be about that. Um, much contemporary narrative art lacks depth and meaning to a remarkable degree. And I think that's an excellent summary. Now, we've only just scratched the surface so what I'm going to do, Greg, is I'm going to wish you a happy Christmas. People will be watching this saying, well, we're past Christmas. I'll wish you a happy new year, which is a much more Christian celebration, as we Scots know. <laughs> but I wish you a happy new year, and I'll see you in the new year. Fabulous, David, and I look forward to continuing this discussion. I love this uh, popular culture topic, and uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoy our podcast. Have a great Christmas, and um, have a wonderful Christmas and new year, and, uh, you know, we're... Uh, have one of those uh, whiskies uh, when you have one of those whiskies. Think of me over uh, over the festive season. I will. That that's speaking of of art and culture and spirituality. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Bye. Thanks so much, David. <laughs>